Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So I know today's guest has a ton of haters, but I'm not afraid to admit that when I first saw this bit on TV growing up, it made me laugh harder than almost anything else I'd ever seen. Monopoly. There's another one we had. We had Monopoly. Everybody did. Nobody liked it. Everybody had it. Nobody, even if you think you liked the game, you didn't. And it's simple why, ready? Because this is anybody here, two and a half hours into a game of Monopoly, ready? Fuck this game! It's four in the morning, Grandma. You win! This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was the one and only Dane Cook. Here's the deal. I have been totally fascinated by Dane's comedy career ever since I found out that we both went to the same high school in Arlington, Massachusetts. Dane graduated 12 years before me, so by the time I was there, he was already becoming one of the most successful stand-up comedians of all time. I've wanted to have him on this podcast for a long time, and I was so happy that we were finally able to make it happen just as he's gearing up to tape his first stand-up special in more than 10 years at the Wang Theater in Boston later this month. Dane is definitely a complicated figure in the comedy world, beloved by many of the frat boy fans who grew up with him and loathed by others who view him as everything that was wrong with the hyper-masculine stand-up scene of the early 2000s. But his story is truly incredible, from his rapid rise to comedy superstardom, to the inevitable fall from grace, and more than a few attempts at a comeback. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation. It was a wild one. Here's me with Dane Cook. So yeah, welcome. So I don't know if anyone gave you the the heads up on this, but uh, you and I have something pretty big in common. Okay is that we we both grew up in Arlington, Massachusetts and went to Arlington High School. That is breaking news. <laughs> I did not know that. Wait, okay, so what part of Arlington, what year graduating? So I graduated in 02, so I think I was I was a little bit after you. Oh, I was there two? a little bit after you, but um I don't know when were, you were like 10 years before yeah, that they, or class of 1990. 1990, yeah. Ponders. Very, we have the, the weirdest mascot of any high school, I think, the, the Ponders, which nobody knows what that means. So yeah, I've, I've always, you know, um, it's always, we sort of like knew about you because you were already doing comedy when we were in high school. So it was like a big deal that, you know, someone from AHS had, had gotten out, uh, made it in, in comedy, was, uh, you know, famous. Um, and then the thing that really blew my mind was seeing when you went back to to the high school in Torgasm, which I was already gone for a few years by then, but it was just very surreal to see that. And you, um, you know, visited with Lucille Burt, who was also my creative writing teacher, um, cause she was still there when I was there. Um, and just seeing that that whole scene was, was very crazy. So I'd love to just start there. What was it like for you to, to do that and go back to, to high school in that series? It was really meaningful. It really, uh, it was, um, I remember it was a very emotional day as well because, well, for a number of reasons. I mean, first of all, first stage I ever got on was at Arlington High School. Uh, Frank Roberts was my mentor and good friend for many years. And Mr. Roberts, my drama Roberts. teacher as well. I okay. did, uh, I did the, uh, the musicals as well. He, uh, he had that incredible booming voice, but he had such a, uh, he was such a caring guy. And he was, um, he was a major factor, I think, in, in the very first thing that you need before you even take the stage, which is, you know, building up your self-confidence. And for me, what that meant was I'd switched from, I went to a Minuteman in Lexington for my freshman year. And then I was told my parents, I was like, I want to switch because I want to, you know, get into uh, drama. I, I, maybe I should switch so I can get on stage and start to figure out if I can even do this. And literally after the first day of class, whatever the presentation day was, I think the assignment was to, for five minutes, get up there and do something entertaining and share something about yourself. Or, and I remember I did something entertaining with uh, 
Scooby, that monkey that's right behind oh, yeah. you right there. <laughs> I did a little thing. And then I shared a story about, you know, uh, something, something about nostalgia. I don't remember what it was, but, and Frank approached me after the class and he was like, he was like, I, I, I see something really special in you. This is after the first class. So it's like, I'm a little suspicious at this one. I'm yeah. like, what? <laughs> what does this mean? Um, <laughs> and, and sure enough, he, um, you know, he meant what he said. He wanted to help me to find some confidence that he just immediately saw something there. And so I started going in early to school and we would read plays and we kind of just break down performance. And more than anything, it was like therapy. It was like we were getting to know each other. And I was finally communicating with somebody beyond just my family in a way that was talking about possibilities in life, right? Talking about like, what's over there? And, 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 and could I, could I be in the arts? Could I do stand up? Could I do theater? Lucille, who was my creative writing and journalism teacher at the time, she was such a major factor, not only in helping me to learn how to put my thoughts on paper, but I remember I would draw on the desks and I'd fill the whole desk. I'd draw really quick, abstract drawings. And one day during class, I was drawing on the desk and all of a sudden I looked and she was standing right behind me. <laughs> I got really nervous and I felt like, oh God, now I'm in trouble. I said, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll erase it. And she was so sweet. And she was like, no, no, I, you, can, you can draw on the desks anytime you like because something you're drawing might inspire somebody else sitting at that desk to come up with a story of their own. I thought it was so wonderful. I think it was maybe the first <laughs> thing outside of my own home where I was like, wow, people are kind. People, are, <laughs> people can be really um, supportive. So those two really helped me to figure out how to, how to write, how to put ideas on paper or on the desk. And then Frank, of course, helped me to just get my, earn my stripes in terms of getting on stage in front of some of the, the plays and all that. So full circle, going back to AHS and standing on the first stage I ever stood on after all these years of uh, meeting moments was really, really, uh, really wonderful. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, going back to the, then the beginning of your, what became your stand-up career, were you, did you actually start doing stand-up when you were still in high school or was it just after or how did that? It was, it was right after. Yeah. I started doing stand up. Well, I did actually, I did kind of sort of officially do stand up that year, but my first like open mic was at catch rising star some months after I graduated. The deal with my parents was I'm not going to ever do college. I'm not, I'm not going to go that route, but if you support me, I'll finish high school. So I was <laughs> skipping a lot of it. I really was skipping a lot of high school. I was over at Buttrix in the back or Brigham's with Mr. Hall, I think would come over there and sometimes we'd have lunch. He, he gave up on punishing me and <laughs> giving me uh, detention. And he started having, uh, <laughs> and we sit there and have like a, a, a patty melt and talk about what real life is all about outside of the hallways. He knew there was no chance of uh, convincing you to, to go back to class. He tried, he tried, but I, I, I was pretty assertive even back then. And, and I remember saying to him and even my parents, like, why are you getting A's and B's in the first, whatever it's called, the first quarter? And then my grades would slip as the, as the year went on. I'd say, um, I already proved that I can do it. Why do I need to keep showing everybody that I can get an A? I know I can get an A. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but I also knew those grades didn't matter because I was going to do, I was going the comedy route. I mean, I was hoping, you know, that that would be my, my future would be pounding the pavement and then trying to build a career like that. So what do you remember about that very first time getting up on stage at that open mic? Well, I remember it wasn't, I wasn't supposed to do it. I was just in the crowd. I'd spent like three weeks at Catch in Cambridge watching other uh, performers. I was just sitting in the crowd watching the show and they would go to the list of people that signed up pre in the week previous. And they got to like maybe the fourth or the fifth person on the list. And the host was like, okay, next on the list, where is Ernest Glenn? And there was like two seconds of nobody moved. I looked around and I just, I guess I quickly realized Ernest Glenn didn't show. So I put my hand up <laughs> and the host pointed at me and said, you're Ernest Glenn. And I just I nodded. And they said, my intro, I think was, ladies and gentlemen, you know him from the fifth row. Please welcome <laughs> Ernest Glenn. And that was my first set, but I'd had ideas. Uh, I had like things that I've been, you know, with a vase in the mirror, that whole cliche practicing. And, and so I got some laughs. I actually got a couple of laughs. I think the first thing that I told was something about, you know, a speaking spell or, or slip and slides. It was a lot of nostalgia back then. Cause I mean, what else was I going to talk about? But, but I got a couple of laughs, I did a couple of things that were like physical and a couple of things missed the mark, but I do remember leaving the stage that night and it was a transformative experience. I knew that it was what I was meant to do from that first time. 
I couldn't spell when I was a little kid. I couldn't spell, so my parents got all concerned. So they went down to the uh, the toy store. They bought me a little red box called Speak and Spell. You remember that, Speak and Spell? They shouldn't have called it Speak and Spell, but they should have called it Speak Like the Devil. Remember the voice? A-E-I-O-U. What was that? That thing was evil. A-L-M-N. That thing would wake me in the middle of the night, like two in the morning. Play with me. Get up. I want to spell right now. I saw some story that David Cross was hosting the first night you went up. Is that is that that night? Yeah, he was doing something called Cross Comedy, which was a mixture of like some sketch and then every couple of skits they'd bring a comic. So he would host and then one of his one of the cronies from the sketch group would then bring you up and it was really just more of anything me sitting there week after week going, "Can I quell my anxiety?" which was really like my throat was already closed watching other people. What I didn't realize is if I never got called up, that throat closing, that doesn't go away until you do it. So there was kind of relief when you would go on stage and start talking? There was relief. And almost like pretty quickly, I acknowledged that whatever is happening to me when I, the adrenaline or whatever the vicarious you know moment I'm in, I felt more kind of balanced and, and I had more purpose and more of a present feeling than I had anywhere else. I think I lived in my mind a lot off stage, and I also always was like worried about what people thought of me. And I had, I was very kind of like I don't know. I was like self loathing. I was really an introvert. So that was a place where the pressure was so immediate and on that you didn't have time to really think. You could later <laughs> you, you could pick it apart, but I liked the feeling of two things were happening. I was escaping, but I was escaping to being present. That makes sense. So what was the what was the scene that you kind of entered into at that point? Was it really in Boston that you were working in, in those very early years? Yeah, Boston comedy scene at that time was, it was interesting because what we know now is the comedy boom of the 80s. Comedy became very big in the 80s. It, it had reached its, uh, its, it, its pinnacle of like, in terms of like the nightclub only of it before television hit a weird era in the 90s of oversaturating it and almost kind of killing it. (laughs) Because it was such bad comedy on television that it made people then go to a nightclub and see even more of something that was probably not polished off properly. And then they'd be like, we're never spending our money on that. We'll go down to, you know, Dave and Buster's and fucking throw some (laughs) skee-ball around. But uh, so I was entering it in where the good thing was there was a lot of rooms. The good, bad thing was they were kind of half empty. There might have been 20 or 30 rooms in and around the the greater Boston area. And uh, I remember one of the headlining comics in my first year tapping me on the shoulder or patting me on the shoulder and said, and he said literally, um, welcome to the scene, kid. It ended a year ago. Like, so they all knew (laughs) that. That doesn't feel good. Yeah, no, but it was perfect because myself, uh, the guys that I came up with, Patrice O'Neill's and and Burr and and Gary Gullman, we kind of all were um, given the opportunity to get better on a lot of stages, but without the pressure, you know, we had, we had the ability to have a lot of foot and mouth disease and fail our way forward until we figured it out. Um, what was one of your first big breaks, um, in those early years? What do you feel like sort of catapulted you to that next level from being an open mic comic who was kind of scared to go up to, to really feeling like you could do this as a, as a career? Yeah, that's interesting. I, it's funny. Cause I never really thought on a local level, what kept me in it. But I think if I had to I think more than anything, I started doing some college gigs in and around Boston. As you know, there's just you know tons of opportunities to play schools, and um, those shows, the nightclub act in front of like you know grown men and women, and you know people that was one energy. But then performing to people my own age, basically, there was an entirely different dynamic. And I remember after about a year of doing uh, a lot of schools, a lot of colleges. Um, the numbers when I would go back the next year was already like, oh, you know, these 400 kids are now it's 600. Or, and I was like, um, I think I'm onto something here. So probably that kept me, kept a little bit of extra money in my pocket. Wasn't a lot, but it was enough to provide me the opportunity to then go to the nightclubs and have those long nights where I'd never get up and I would hang out. Do you feel like, do you feel like the college kids, the people your age got what you were trying to do more than even some of the other comedians who you were, you know, who were going up in the clubs did? You know, I was really, um, I was 
I didn't want to create a college act that then wasn't a club act. And I was, and I was really uh, meticulous early on to, to almost immediately what I knew I loved and didn't like about comics or comedy was I didn't love the idea of a character that quite potentially wasn't allowed to grow and evolve. If you had too much of a character, it was almost like being an animated television show. The baby never gets, you know, grows <laughs> up. And I acknowledged that pretty early on. So I remember thinking, if I'm going to do the show in the in the colleges, I need to have it be seamless so I don't have to, like, sh- really shift gears. But I also need to try to figure out a way to potentially get these college kids coming to the clubs that were now pretty much empty because that just wasn't their, that wasn't their generation yet. So it was it was an interesting time and there were a lot of moving parts. But I do remember one of the first kind of business decisions I made was try to be a real person, try not to be a character or else you might end up getting stuck as um, and I, I, the stigma definitely got put on me anyway. You'll only be a frat comic. You know what I mean? It was like that was going to happen anyway because I looked like it. I was a young kid. <laughs> you know, I would walk down the hallways at some of the gigs. And I remember on a couple of occasions not knowing where the where the performance center was. And I'd say to somebody who looked like a teacher in charge, I'd say, I'd say, oh, where's the uh, theater? Where's the cafeteria, maybe? And they go, uh, they go, oh, you're going to the show? And I'd say, I am the show. Because <laughs> I looked like just one of the, you know, one of the kids going to the gig. So I do, I do remember early on, some of the college kids then would say, where can we see you again? And I'd tell them a club. And that was kind of cool to ha- feel like I was pulling them over. And then beyond Boston on a more national level, what was the thing that kind of pushed you to that, to that level in terms of, was it a, a TV uh, opportunity or, or even just go the colleges or how did you feel like you broke out of Boston and became more of a, a national name? Yeah. Early in Boston somewhere, I, I had this notion of, I'm never going to go somewhere until it pulls me to it. And I was like, New York, LA, anywhere. I'm not going to go to a place. Uh, I'm not going to try to book myself in a place that they haven't said, we want you here. And so I was basically like going to build my comedy you know, repertoire as long as I could in, in Boston and New England. And then finally, I got a call. Uh, a friend of mine said, you can get a TV quality tape at Caroline's on Broadway in New York. If for $35, you could get a, uh, a, a TV quality tape, not just a camcorder, and what that would do is that would provide me the chance to audition in Boston for things that maybe Comedy Central was looking to cast. And so I took my $35 and I, I went to New York City. And again, going there because something pulled me there. It's a pretty good and deal. 35 bucks. 35 bucks. Uh, <laughs> the, the bad part of the deal was I was first on a Monday night. So my tape was not probably going to be really moving any needles. <laughs> but somebody was in the crowd that night. Kelly Lee from ABC was in the crowd. And my first night ever in New York City, I was fortunate. Lady Luck uh, put somebody in the crowd who came to me and said, wow, you know, that was that was really great. Is there anything else you could show me like that? And I ended up moving to New York and getting my first holding deal, development deal with ABC Disney to do a uh, very bad prank show that I think we shot a pilot for and it wasn't <laughs> very good. Didn't pan out? No, but it put a little money in my pocket to go to New York. So then it was like the, the the quick version of this is like then I stayed in New York. I got Letterman from New York because Zoe Friedman saw me and put me on, gave me my first late night television spot. By getting that opportunity with Dave uh, with David Letterman and and Zoe, then I could do national college on a national level. From that, I got to go into the San Francisco Comedy Contest. And by '96, I was living in LA because somebody saw me on the, the comedy uh, competition and said, oh, we're doing a show with Betty White and Marie Osmond, and we need to cast Betty White's grandson. Will you come <laughs> to LA and meet with us? I'd never done a TV show. I'd never done anything. I called Frank Roberts, and I said, Frank, I'm, what do you do? And he said, everything you do on stage, but not as big. <laughs> <laughs> That's good advice. And so I did. I got my first opportunity, but I really followed my gut on that, which was like, don't go somewhere until it calls upon you. And then when you go, make sure that you, um, you know, bring your A game and try to impress people so that you can stick around for maybe another year or two in this racket. <laughs> was that first Letterman set a, a game changer in, in a lot of ways? It really was. It, it, it More than I even expected, because not only as a kid who is still dealing with a lot of anxiety, I mean, really bad in New York. I was not ready as a human to go to New York. I was ready as a comic, very much so. I was excelling in comedy and I knew I was kind of at the front of the pack. 
um, in terms of what I was doing and just my the kind of business savvy, I guess you could say, of what I saw, the future of building a brand and meet and greets and stuff that I think the old school comics were like, nah, you skulk around the back after and you smoke cigarettes and you hate everybody. And I was like, nah, I think there's a, a, a new way to do this from all the college meet and greets and hang, hang time. But Zoe gave me the opportunity. I did the spot and I felt uh, validated. It made me feel better as a person that I accomplished something to show my family. And then having to being able to do that show several times over the next bunch of years, it built my confidence for television. It built my confidence in my writing. It built my, and it built my fan base. Yeah. I'm sure, you know, there were a ton of opportunities coming your way after that. One that I did not know about until I read about it, uh, doing, you know, preparation for this. What's the story with SNL and did they, did you audition for SNL? Did they offer you a, a, a place in the cast? What, what exactly happened there? Yeah, so Saturday Night Live was um, scouting for a couple of new cast members, but I knew that after Sandler left, they were kind of trying to, they specifically wanted like young, white, energetic. I played the guitar, I used to bring my guitar up on stage just to show them, like I also do this. And so they <laughs> they called me up or with my manager and they were like, we love you. We think you bring the right college, you know, the whole thing, just the right package. And so all I had to do was go in front of Lauren Michaels. I had a couple, I did, I actually did some impersonations. I never did them on stage, but I could, I could kind of get people down. And who did you do? Do you remember? Who did I do? I did like Christian Slater. He was in like, uh, in the one where he played the, the DJ and everybody kind of knew him from that. He had that kind of radio, he would talk into the, and I did that, you know, probably <laughs> about as good as I just did yeah, but so I did a couple of things and, you know, Christian Slater had like a look. So I think I like slicked my hair back and had to hold my eyebrows up and hey, can I talk to you? For and I was doing this Christian, Slater. but it really more than anything, it was just the, it was the energy and it was the, it was the kind of like that unbridled thing that I brought to the stage. But when I contained it for Letterman, they were like, that's it. Bring some of that. Well, I had a huge, huge like breakdown outside of Rockefeller Plaza and I sat on a, a bench I couldn't breathe. I was having like a anxiety and to panic. I've only had a, in my life, fortunately, like a few really bad, like um, catatonic state level panic attacks, you know, incapacitated, but one really bad. And this was just about there sitting on this bench. The reason I couldn't do it is because I knew I'd get it. I mean, I mean it. I, I, I knew I'd go up and get it. I knew what they were telling me. And I felt like I would be fine as long as there wasn't what I also understood, which was like the politics of working there. And I had a couple of friends that were on the show and a manager. Who made, so it could be cutthroat. I was not a confrontational person. I was not a person who could fight for my opinion. I was really scared a lot. And I was like, I'm not ready for that. I can't do that. I can't fight and I can't sit at a table with a bunch of writers. Some of them are older than me, more experienced. I, 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 I couldn't do it. And I called my manager. I said, I'm not going in. And uh, man, it, I disappointed a lot of people that day. I really disappointed myself. And so <laughs> there was a lot of years on the road. And I'd click on, I'd see Fallon. Fallon got it. Yeah. He kind of became the, the Sandler replacement. He did. And obviously he shined and he was wonderful. And so there was no doubting. And I knew Jimmy a little bit from gigs. So there was that little part of me that was like very happy. Probably two things. I'm happy that he seems happy and he's great. But also like still a little part of me that's like, I don't have to do that. And he can do it. <laughs> Um, so you didn't, you no, no regrets about uh, turning down that that huge no, opportunity. No, no, none whatsoever. No, in fact, it was it would years later turn into um, an understanding that I had a different path that was I was cultivating, and in some ways, looking up to Lauren Michaels and being able to then years later sit with him and say, you know, I love the business of comedy and, and, and everything from fonts on posters to theme to color to it goes well beyond just the performance. So I love the producing element and I wanted to be able to have creative say and I like picking talent and surrounding myself with people who can do something I'm not as good at, but they'll make me look. So for a lot of reasons, I realized, oh, by building up my own brand, when I finally came back to host the show, it was, um, and by the way, I went outside <laughs> the night before I sat on that same bench <laughs> that I cried at and felt like I failed and told myself, no, that was the beginning of your success. 
right in that moment that I try to really, as I have the opportunity as the old bull to mentor young people, I say, don't, don't feel so bad about those moments where everything's falling apart. Sometimes that just means you're shedding or acknowledging really who you are and preparing yourself for something later. Coming up, Dane talks about how he ended up playing himself on Louis C.K.'s show and why he didn't feel any satisfaction when his one-time nemesis replaced him as comedy's biggest villain. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. In addition to Dane Cook, you might enjoy some of my other interviews with Boston-born comics like Bill Burr, Mike Birbiglia, Pete Holmes, and Gary Gullman. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to those episodes and everything else from our free archive, and you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Dane Cook. So we've been talking about all the high, the highs of your career, and there were many more to come after that, um, you know, whether it's playing Madison Square Garden or everything. You know, I also do want to talk about, you know, that there, there was a, a turning point in some ways when opportunities started to go away. Did you feel that? And, what did, and how did you handle that when, when you kind of had to deal with the flip side of the massive, you know, skyrocket to fame? Yeah, it's funny because... I was walking away from opportunities more than opportunities were going away. And I think it was because I acknowledged, I was just talking about this uh, with a friend uh, on a podcast. I acknowledged that I'd hit this upper echelon of stand-up comedy and I took comedy to everywhere I dreamed of taking it. There wasn't a place left that I wanted to bring stand-up comedy. And I grew up loving comedians and performers that similar to the Carlins or similar to Steve Martin or Eddie Murphy, ventured beyond it. And so there was a period where after you play all these shows and Vicious Circle and massive, massive crowds are the backdrop to where then you say, now I'm ready to take these fans and tell new stories in in new and interesting ways. But the kicker is the industry doesn't want to do that. The industry wants you to play the same note And so you get a lot of scripts that start to feel pretty derivative. And I was not content to to do that. So I guess exterior-wise, the lean years, supposedly, were after all those arena shows and those big, massive shows. But from where I was sitting, it was really like, I'd lost my parents. I'd had this whole terrible incident with my brother where I had to put my... My my brother went to jail for, for theft. And it was really me both enjoying some life after maybe 20 straight years of road dogging it and taking it to the, the, the highest heights to then doing two things that were probably more important, which was taking care of my health and wellness and allowing myself to start coming up with a new game plan and where I wanted to take my fans next and following in the footsteps of people that I've wanted to emulate. So while I acknowledge that, yes, definitely things, the narrative changes and, and, and when that shifted, I was okay with that. <laughs> I was like, I was like, perfect, because I'm ready to change it as well. So let's do that together. Yeah. And I feel like there's been a lot of uh, comeback narratives too over the years, which, you know, a lot of people deal with. Um, and one of them was the, uh, the show Next Caller. There was a sitcom that you were going to do on NBC. And I was really curious what happened with that, because it seemed like it was a, a great combination of factors and that you actually shot a bunch of it, but then it never, it never aired. 
Yeah. It, it, well, we got canceled before we even, I think, had a chance to go through a pilot season. We we did four episodes and we just got a phone call one day and said, that's it. Production shut down. And to this day, we never got a, a response to it. And, and, you know, at that point, I that, there was no complaining. At that point, it was I remember I had come home for a weekend from New York where we were shooting and I brought all my stuff. I brought all my bags. I don't know why, because I was living in New York, but I brought everything. <laughs> and then I got a call and they said, yeah, it's done. And I was like, oh, it's weird. I, I had a weird feeling this weekend. I brought all my stuff. But you kind of know that's just the way the business goes. There's a lot of people making decisions beyond your hopes. And uh, that was it. That was it. I think it was around that same time, or maybe, I don't know if it was a little before or after, that you appeared as yourself on Louie, which was a, a sort of big moment as well at the time. Right. How did that come about? I think it was really just at the time Louie and I were so tired of that narrative. It, it was really, it was so old hat and it was pretty boring. And I'm sure, no, I know he was as tired of getting asked about it as I, as I was. And so when he called me up and said, Hey, do you want to like put this to bed in an episode of the show? I was like, Oh my goodness. Yes. Because it was, I don't think I'd had anything in my life at that point, which was every once in a while, it's like a, a needle skip on an old vinyl. It's just like, um, I'm moving on and we're all ready to, to talk about something else. But there was, a, I guess, an infatuation with the internet at that time of people going to, to, to battling each other in some regard or having a difference of opinion in some regard. And now that's like, now you'd make a TV show out of it, right? It's like, you, there's like rap battles and, you know, people will, <laughs> now it's turned into actual entertainment when two people are uh, have a disagreement. And really that's what it was, but it had grown into this thing that, we wanted to take back the story. I think that for what it was, it was it was one of the most compelling moments in television, I think, in several years. It was pretty wild. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's interesting because you were kind of coming together to put it to bed, but you were kind of doing it on his turf because it's his show. Um, and I saw somewhere you said you you kind of wanted to, you maybe would have wanted to tweak some things in the script. So I was curious what that was that you yeah. that you uh, maybe I, I did, weren't, weren't I did thrilled my, with. I got two of my tweaks in there because again, I knew it was, I knew it was Louis's pers- perspective. And I did say to him at one point, I was like, well, you know, you're projecting some of these thoughts onto me. I said, but I, I remember, I think I said something like, uh, it doesn't matter what's on the page. It's all going to be in the eyes. Anyway, I knew what I wanted to do. I knew my, deme- I knew what I was going to do for my purpose of the, the scene. But the two notes that I had was in the script, he had me backstage at a comedy club. And I think the original script had my name as Kane Duke, which for some reason he didn't, I was like, Louie, if we're going to do this, like, yeah, let me that's be just me, silly. you be you. And then I said, and you got to put me in an arena because like people know me right now is like in this moment as the arena guy. He's like, no, no, it's going to be at a comedy club. And he called me in my hotel a day later and he's like, yeah, you know what? I re- I changed it. You're right. Right. Well, so that's I like did. the whole, that's like sort of the whole concept of the thing, right? Because you're getting him into see a, what, a concert or something. Yeah. I, I think he wanted that green room idea at first, which I I understood it, but I still was like, if we're going to put us both in an uncomfortable situation. You should be uncomfortable walking into my arena and I should be uncomfortable because it's your show. Right. Yeah. It make, gives it a right. little more uh, equality. But it was, it was, uh, it was, it was an incredible, that era, man, it's kind of like, I look back and that, that time of my life, there were so many things that were, um, it was like a turnstile moment in my life for a number of reasons. But I do remember after that was kind of put to bed, it was like that book is closed, that chapter. I did a special isolated incident. I called it that because I felt like this moment in my life is an isolated incident. And then after that, it was almost like uh, a new a new season. It was good to finally do that and very proud of it and glad that we did it. But it was nice to move away from that. 2006. That should have been like my triumph. And I enjoyed it, Louis, for maybe two months two months before it started to suck because everything I read about me was about how I stole jokes from you, which I didn't. I kind of think you did. Dude, why would I steal three jokes from you when I have hours of material? Why? Why would I do that? Risk my reputation. Because they were funny jokes. You I don't think that you saw me do those jokes and said, I'm going to tell those jokes too. I don't think there's a world where you're that stupid or that bad a guy. I, I do think, though, that you're like, you're like a machine of success. 
you're like a like a rocket and you and you're rocketing to the stars and your and your engines are sucking stuff up stuff is getting sucked up in your engines like birds and bugs and some of my jokes i i i think you saw me do them i know you saw me do them and i think they just went in your brain and i don't think you meant to do it but i don't think you stopped yourself either and that's why i never felt the need to help you not be hated by a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it kind of got opened up a little bit again when everything happened with Louis and the, the Me Too stuff. Um, what did that, what was that like for you to kind of, because you were kind of framed as the villain of that story on his show, and then he kind of became a comedy villain in a, in a larger sense. So how did you react to that whole thing? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't remember how I reacted. I just remember feeling... Um, I just remember feeling it was, uh, I just, I just remember feeling like, you know what, there's no, uh, there's nothing good coming out of this moment right now. I just remember it, for, for me, maybe at that point in my life, enough therapy and enough, it was like, that's not my experience to understand firsthand because I wasn't there on either side of it. But I knew, I, I think that people expected because I had a moment with Louie, but it's not comparable to whatever else that was, right? It has nothing to do with two comics arguing over a bit, right? So how I felt about it um, was I didn't really feel anything either way for it. I certainly didn't feel, um, somebody asked me, did I feel good about it? I said, no, not at all. Especially since I had a camaraderie at that point with Louie in, in a friendship. You know, we'd, we'd, we'd uh, shared space after all that other stuff was, you know, put to rest. So yeah, it didn't, uh, it didn't make me feel very good on any regard. Yeah, yeah. Um... I'm curious too what you learned from your own kind of early cancel culture moment because there's been so much, you know, talk about this and and the changing of the comedy culture since you started and you know I'm thinking of the Aurora shooting joke which was kind of another <laughs> unfortunate low point. Um what did you take out of that experience? Well, I mean, it was uh I was filmed without my knowledge at a comedy club a week after so I felt uh like somebody had, you know, snuck into my home and recorded something privately and shared it. I didn't think it was anybody's business except for the crowd that was there that understood. And if people know me, that I am not nefarious and there's not a malicious bone in my body. So I don't know how you interpreted it probably means more to you than the feeling I felt when um, somebody had secretly, you know, taken my performance and tried to weaponize it and hurt me with it. It was very weird. Yeah. I mean, in a, in a larger sense, how do you feel like you've seen the culture around comedy change in the, you know, decades since you started? I think in every single decade that I've been doing it, there's always been the decade before saying you can't say that. And why would you do that? You know, I think that it's more turbulent because we live at the, in the internet times and everything is so like lightning round of information that gets out there. We're quick to jump on pig pile and then we're quick to click onto something else. And, you know, it's like something shiny's over there now. That's, you know, something worse is happening. Forget this. Let's look at that. So I don't really, I've been doing it long enough to know that you don't really pay any attention to that stuff. It's really meaningless. It only means something to the people that I guess need, need that need to feel embroiled in controversy. But I shroud myself in creativity. You know, I live my life creating and I surround myself with people that are think tank kind of people and want to come up with like solutions and ways to put a spotlight and hopefully find healing in situations. So, yeah, it's like cancel culture. And, and I tell comics that I talk to now, I say what you really need to focus on doing more than anything else is being true to who you are and tell stories that you've experienced and observe and report from where you sit. Because if you're coming from the truth, people can't fuck with that. You know, if you're coming from a real place and it's your experience, if you're trying to put yourself in somebody's shoes and then you're staggering towards an ill-advised tale, you're going to be in trouble. And that is the reality of the world we live in today. So I think it's incumbent upon artists to be truth tellers, but tell your truth. Do you regret apologizing in any way for it? Because it's like, if it is something that was just kind of taken out of context or you had to be there. I don't really know how to answer that question. I, except to say, if every, if we, if we, every single performer, every single person that's ever been out there in, in front of a camera, in front of a mic, in front of the public eye 
is going to have said or done something that they probably look back and say, wow, that was, that was, uh, you know, that was, uh, uncouth. That was off kilter. Um, that won't age well. I mean, there's a myriad of different ways to look back. I, I'm a stand-up comic, man. If you're asking me to go back and look throughout my whole history, I'm sure there's a lot of stuff that I could, we could delve into and say like, oh, that's embarrassing. The same way I look at old haircuts and jeans, I could look at pieces of material and you go, the, the great part is when you can actually look back on it now and co- and do commentary on it to actually show people, look, this is where I miss, made a misstep. And now I can own that moment with hopefully something that's even more enlightening and and funnier. So it's like when you fuck up, if you just put yourself in a dark room and beat yourself up forever, then that's your your story. But if you can grow from it and impart and create from it, then I think it almost makes the moment more critical that it happened in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I think that's sort of the most the the worst thing about cancel culture is that it prevents people from changing and growing and learning from things, and basically says, you know, you made this mistake, therefore you, you know, that's it for you. Right, and I and I listen. I've I've seen a lot of comics go through it, it even earlier in their career. They said something, and it was just beyond the scope. But it's like we want our comedians to be going into the dark corners and coming back and observing if. If they're good at what they do, then hopefully they can go there and then be like a transmitter of some sort. Uh, but if we're not allowing them to figure out how to how to find that moment and we're canceling them before they even really discover it, then it's such a disservice to the laughs we all need down the line when it's time to finally heal through humor. And what's so wild and interesting now that I think back, the joke that ended up on CNN that I did in front of 20 people a week after <laughs> a shooting we're not even talking about the people that two hours, three hours that night were on Twitter and people that were for days already saying things that were deplorable, really like, and, and, and they're not comedians. Did it make you change your approach at all, knowing that you, it's almost impossible to stop cameras from being in a lot of these rooms? No, no. What, what it made me do is realize I always have to come from a truthful place and I have to talk about things from, a, from the deepest part of my gut how I see the world and how I believe or interpret things. And if you do that, I really believe that even if somebody goes, that's not my thing, then at least they know, or they sense you're coming from a a place of, of truth. That's the only thing that we can do is we're developing as performers is try to bring it back to some, some, something that shows people. I I live this story. I'm in the story. This story impacts me. And I think that's what makes good comics, great comics. So coming back to the present, you're about to tape your your next special at the Wang Theater in Boston um, in October, um, I believe. So uh, what can what can fans expect from this this new uh, you know this new Dane Cook special that is your first one in, in quite a while? Man, it's a long time coming because I wanted to do it right before COVID. We had it all set up. <laughs> yeah, you got a little you got a little sidetracked. You know, I had come off of 2019. I finally played Radio City Music Hall. It was a dream. It's something I wanted to do for my mom my whole life. She loved the Rockettes. And um, I did that show. And then I was supposed to soon after tape the special. And so I was geared up and ready. I was so ready. Um, The pause, oddly, gave me... uh, It's funny. At first, I was like bummed about it. And then as I got back on stage after and put the new dates on the book, it gave me a chance to develop a couple of things that now I'm almost glad that it was a bit of a delay. Really, what I wanted to do more than anything else was like, I feel my best doing stand-up comedy now. I feel like I have so many more tools in the arsenal and things that I wanted to develop and was uh, looking to really rivet in in, in in how I perform, but also just the aesthetic of what I want a special to look like. So it's just beyond just the material. It's like, how am I going to present this? You know, the way comedy is presented and the way we, you know, devour comedy now and uh, media a lot has changed since my first, you know, clips on, on MySpace and, and early, uh, you know, early comedy uh, MP3s and stuff that were online. So without giving away too much, it's like, it's my best show yet. I'm, I'm using all the, I can look back at Harmful or Retaliation, Vicious Circle, Troublemaker. And I feel like it's, it's a little of all of that, of course, with evolution, right? With more stories to tell. Um, but I think that on the production side, like like Vicious Circle or like Isolated Incident, I think I'm going to be doing something that 
will also advance the 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 form of stand up comedy and and how I think it should be uh, seen. I think that there we're going to do some really interesting things that uh, that hopefully will um, that other comics and people will say, oh, that's how comedy should look on television. Yeah, I mean, you said you know you wanted to kind of age into you know or, or be able to age as a comedian and and not be you know stuck in this frat thing. So how is how has your comedy aged, evolved, changed now that you're, you know, um, the age totally. that you are. Yeah. More personal, um, more, uh, introspective while at the same time, you know, I still, I think one thing that's always there, you know, the things that are like the cornerstones of whatever your favorite performer is. It's like, I love observational comedy with the twists, you know, the stuff that's like, we all see it and understand it, but the little, the, 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 the dark version in the back of your head that thinks, you know, what if the tire hit Mary in the face? I remember the writing that joke and being like, this is so fucked up. But I think people will be like, I think that. What a horrible way to go. What happened to Mary? A tire hit her in the face. How do you say that without laughing? A tire. I can't even do it now. How did Mary die? A tire hit her in the face. What was she doing putting her face near tires? No, 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 no. This tire hunted Mary down. This tire murdered Mary. This tire wasn't fucking around, as we like to say. This tire was out for vengeance. And that's probably the most gratifying thing at year 30 is now having grown up with the generations of comedy fans that have come back to me and said, you know, those things that you said some years ago about you know, whatever that, you know, hardcore subject was, that was my experience. I lived through cancer with my mom. I, you know, knew somebody that took their life and you start to realize, oh man, I'm onto something. When you, when you just share your truth and it can be stark, it it can be caustic and it can be light and it can be just fucking straight up funny. And it's just more people are invited on the ride and I can't wait for people to experience it with me. So as we get to the end here, uh, the final segment on the show is called The First Laugh. Um, and I want to just run through a, a few firsts with you, um, starting with the first piece of comedy that you remember making you laugh really hard as a kid. Uh, that I saw, something that made me laugh. One of the first things that I remember laughing where like tears were coming out of my eyes was Saturday Night Live when Martin Short did a character called Ed Grimley. And he was dancing around. He had this crazy hairdo. He had this voice that he was doing and he was, <laughs> he just threw his whole self into it. And I remember, um, yeah, I remember laughing at that out loud and the next day wanting to kind of revel in it and, and re-experience it, talk about it with my family or reenact it. It was a big, big impact. Um, I often ask comedians about their first big bomb. Um, and the one that I wanted to ask you about specifically, cause I just saw it, um, and, really feel like I need to know more about this is you opened for fish at the Boston garden. Right. That's what you would say on <laughs> paper. <laughs> on paper, you'd say we opened for fish in reality. We yeah. Bombed before fish. <laughs> bad. What was, what was that experience like? It was the first time I think I'd ever had a really bad set. I was with a comedy uh, group and we'd been asked to do this rock of Boston show. We thought we were going to go up early. Kind of like when the crowd was first sitting but they were like, we thought it'd be a good idea to let some bands play. And then we're going to put you on after this group, the Spin Doctors. And then before the headliner, you can't do four person improv comedy in, a, <laughs> in front of 15,000 people, especially it was an old structure. It was the old Boston Garden. We didn't last two minutes before. Uh, when I tell you, there's no middle ground really of the crowd being, you know, not uh, into it. They went from trying to understand what we were doing to being, you know, feverishly angry with us for even being there and people started throwing lighters and started throwing their sandals at us fish concert obviously and um we were we were not ushered off the stage we were forced off by all the debris that was hitting us and bouncing around us It, it was really i remember leaving the stage that night and man we we thought that was game over we thought all right words out our career is ending right now yeah, but it may have been have more to do with the setting than uh, than what you were doing on, up there. Right, right. That's what we tried to tell ourselves then too, but it still <laughs> it still felt pretty bad. <laughs> and then finally, I like to give comedians a chance to shout out um, something that's making you laugh now. Is there a what's the last piece of comedy uh, or a comedian or a TV show or anything that that is making you laugh right now? 
Well, that, that's that's easy. It's uh, Leah Lamar, who's been um, a comedian and, and a friend that I've gotten to know through Clubhouse uh, and somebody who's in some similar ways using Clubhouse the way I you know, used MySpace years ago, which was like cutting through the malarkey and writing the narrative yourself. Um, but not only that, she's a she's she's a gifted performer. She's uh, shared the stage with me now. Uh, I had her come out to Vegas. We're going to be at the Improv in, in Hollywood here in a few days. But seeing how she's embraced her graduating class of comedians, and she's already sharing the spotlight when it's solely on her, really, at this point. Um, so gracious, you know, good heart, gives back to the community. Um, but I think that I look at her as somebody that uh, I am enjoying being a fan of as well as getting to share stages with her. Nice. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's yeah, a, man, thank you. It's a thrill to talk to a fellow AHS alum. Uh, I think you're the, you're the first one on this podcast, that's for sure, besides me. So. Oh, man. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> and again, I'm sorry I was uh, running a little late today. I'm glad we got no to do worries. this. No worries. It's great. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, good luck with the, with the special taping. I'll be looking forward to watching it. Appreciate it. All right, man. All right. I want to seriously thank Dane Cook for sharing so much of himself on today's episode. You can get tickets to his upcoming shows at the Wang Theater in Boston at danecook.com. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at thedailybeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.